0: G'day everyone, this is a little bit of an early release, as happens with podcasting, you have nothing, 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 and then you have they start backing up, and this was the next one in the queue. It's EFS 16, The Sumerian Story. Now, spoiler alert, we do look into Zachariah Sitchin's work in this one, and if that name gave you trepidation, we understand. Both Angus and I felt the same. However, here at Unlocking the Code... We like to remain open to different perspectives. So that's what we did. We went in there with an open mind and and you, I think you'll be surprised that Max's interpretation and then the, the following discussions, I've got a bit of a different thought process now than I did to when I went into this one. And that's the mark of a good podcast. So hopefully that happens to you. That's enough out of me. Get into this one. Remember on Patreon, Unlocking the Code, if you want to swing a couple of bucks our way, that'd be awesome. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, Unlocking the Code. It's interesting times still. However, the research must continue. Stay disciplined, hold the line, and I think more than anything, please prepare for whatever you think. However, prepare. Be cool, be kind, stay safe, and we'll talk soon. Cheers. Mate, mate. again, we're back. We've got, we've got to finish the book, man. We, we, we've got to finish the book. We need to do a review on how we look, do the book.
1: There's no problem with the book. taking a long time,
0: Yeah, but well, we'll get through it. And the thing is, it's like we could just focus on the book and not do the articles. However, I like doing the articles. I think the articles are cool. So, yeah. Look, we need to refine the process for the next book. All right. yes however what what number we did we decided on 16 we're not sure whether it's 16 but that's what we well, decided this,
1: this was this was part of the experiment mm. was we decided to mm. for like cold reactions mm. to stuff as we go along mm. neither of us know it's coming mm. we just we're we're experiencing it as as the viewers at home yeah with their their ear goggles which I like are, are I like that aspect of it I like, like that aspect but but maybe we could refine that aspect mm. somewhat mm. just to Get the efficiency
0: up, yeah. But it has spurred a lot of conversation and research in that as well. So, well, this is true. Man. It's a hard, it's a hard one. I've enjoyed it, I'm, and I still do enjoy it. Me too. However, well, I also understand and, that sixteen episodes into something is, well, is a lot.
1: I I, <laughs> I also hope that the people at home are enjoying it, and if if they are, then that's all that matters.
0: Yeah, it's consistent. It's pretty consistent. The amount of downloads. I, I enjoy we get.
1: doing this. Mm. I, I think the feeling is, I, I just worry. If everyone's enjoying, yes. it, that's all it is. Yeah. So give us some feedback, guys. What do you think? Is, yeah, is 16 episodes it's too, too many it, for it, one well, book?
0: I think it is too many. However, <laughs> let us know if you don't think. But if it is. if you're happy, if you're happy, you're happy. Exactly. If it's Because I, well, I think that the.
1: Is this just like a soap opera? You know, it's just every. You just <laughs> turn on and it just keeps <laughs> rolling. There's,
0: there's the next episode. Yeah. Well, look, the organic nature of this, and the, and I think we have a lot of fun with it. So. It's interesting, right? Anyway, but we love it. We, we do. love it. All right. And so, we're coming
1: back to you with some more articles starting now. Now.
0: now. So I'm going to go first, mate. You're up big boy. Uh, and look, we've obviously been talking about electromagnetic fusion crystal storage devices, right? Power crystals at power megalithic uh, sites, uh, and many other things. And surprise, surprise, uh, data storage in crystal quartz will change everything dun, dun, dun. Uh, we're October 11 2020 that's only a few days ago Brushy. there's a new type of storage device which many tech corporations have been diving into in secret for the past few years which Hitachi newly came out with a technology they are developing which is a fundamentally a sheet of quartz glass which could potentially save data for up to 300 million years does that so where's the that number that number 300 million is interesting but also the power crystals of the data is good for 300 million years if you didn't know anything about storage devices at present that we have at present oh but we at present have (laughs) uh i don't know sorry great wording it is good thanks guys but anything oh, anything from records, CDs, USB sticks, magnetic tape, none of these can lay a finger on this new, very inspiring technology. The prototype is made of a square of quartz, two centimetres wide and two millimetres thick. It houses four layers of dots that are made with a fem, fem, femtosecond laser, which yields very short pulses of light. The dots represent... Information in binary form, a standard that should be comprehensible even in the distant future and can be read with a basic optical microscope. Since the layers are embedded, surface erosion would not affect them. are we just talking about a microfish, a different version of a microfish? What's remember a microfish? Mar- remember the microfish, the big screens where we were like in the libraries, you used to get the little squares and you have to, you know? No. Oh. I don't Oh, well. Yeah, microfish, man. Okay. Yeah. Look, I'll look it up. Now, while this is thrilling, there's more to it than just that. See, while Hitachi presently has a real producible thing which they will possibly start marketing once they figure out a simple means of recla- relocating data to, say, computers and television, the basic model they have only has the data storage volume somewhat better than a CD. Yeah. All right, okay. Well, that's that's not good. No, but that's not to say that this tech is doomed, seeing that it's young. And even then, some people are now... Are by now working on a larger and better thing. Researchers at the University of Southampton in the UK have been developing an even more unbelievable technology. It's called Superman. Of course, it is crystals, and possibly has a storage for up to three hundred and fifty terabyte and can last forever.
1: No, there's a compromise there. Mm. Like you, you can't have it store heaps and last three hundred million years. Like yeah. there's a payoff. Yeah. So whatever it is, it won't last three hundred million years, but can I just ask, why do we want something that lasts 300 million years, like with such such a limited storage capacity?
0: Yeah, but it's more than that. We've figured out how to, we've actually, in the back blocks of S4 or wherever it is, what they've now done is they've figured out how to unlock the power crystals and the knowledge crystals that they have off the UAPs. And this is the technology finding its way into the mainstream.
1: Oh, 100% it is. Yeah.
0: Because don't forget, uh, Richard Patterson has seen, and I've got a picture of it somewhere. There's this quartz crystal, and his dude shone a torch through it, and it looked like a landscape yep. photo appeared on the wall. Yep. And that was found near Australia's Stonehenge.
1: Yep. So there you go. Like, there's some, so they're, they're drawing stuff in a sheet of crystal now, mm. and then it's going to get further mm. along, mm. obviously, but yeah, and that's come down from, from the alienza. Maybe. Possible. Uh, it's a theory. It is a theory. Everything's a
0: theory. Absolutely. No one
1: knows. Okay. Let's go. Femtosecond laser. The researchers
0: use a femtosecond laser, which produces pulses. Like, we did this already. It appears crystals have still got some magic after all, and they don't have to be just in your pocket. They might be the basis of all of our computers in in the future. I mean, they are now, but possibly even more so. Exactly. I was just going to say,
1: Hmm.
0: what's he going to go? Crystal skulls. The crystal skulls contain ancient knowledge and probably dating back to the time of Atlantis or even further information on a grand scale. See, they're trying to figure out how to read the crystal skulls. Yeah. The skulls are said to have the answers to human evolution, universal information, planetary information, and the most prized of all, humankind's destiny and true purpose. Didn't really read this article before we read it to you guys. <laughs> the legend claims it's cold reaction. It is. Like it we is. The yeah, exactly, about the book. yeah, absolutely. The legend claims that at one time of great need, the skulls would be found and reunited. I'm sure Indiana Jones did this, man. Yeah. The information they did is a documentary. The information they deliver will save the human race. The legend forewarns, though, that mankind must be able to accept the knowledge morally and spiritually. Well, that's true. This data can apparently exist forever and during great temperatures and hostile conditions without degrading, at least until the sun starts to die and expands to consume the earth, that is. Well, that's a bit dramatic, man. Wow. Look, there's no need to go there. Like, uh, All right, look. Call it
1: quits? Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Look rather than storing press information for mankind in ordinary piece of courts that could have been lost in time. The ancients chose to store their wisdom in a vessel shaped like a human head. Okay. Um, these look, maybe getting very dramatic. It's very dramatic generational libraries, man. Look, I think we're going to leave that there. Um, good article. Not too bad. Thanks. No, No, author and not a real surprise there. um, so we've got two articles from SciNature You've got one as well, mate. All right, well, so give good
1: luck. A go at this. Let's see how it goes. Good Physicists luck. Scientists have identified a metal that conducts electricity but not heat. Yes, please.
0: Obviously, <laughs> more UAP uh, technology, mate.
1: That's right. It's all tri- it's all coming out at the same time. <laughs> I'm stuck on the other screen.
0: Go across. I'm trying. Go right, go right, I'll oh, go, go right.
1: right off that side. Yeah, I know. Oh, right. That, that's really confusing. Oh,
0: I know. I <laughs> can't make it go the other way. Good pick up, I can't make it's it go good. the other way. We just
1: need to put, swap the computer and the screen over then. Oh, yeah. All right, here we go. Researchers has, have identified a metal that conducts electricity without conducting heat, an incredibly useful property to defies our current understanding of how conductors work.
0: Not if you ask Oda's car.
1: The metal found in 2017 contradicts something called the Weidmann-France law, which... See how I even had to say law with an accent? Yeah. Which basically states that good conductors of electricity will also be proportionally good conductors of heat, which is why things like motors, appliances, get so hot when you use them regularly. It's... Keep going. But a team in the U.S. showed us this isn't the case for metallic vanadium dioxide, a material that's already well known for its strange ability to switch from a see-through insulator to a conductive metal at the temperature of 67 degrees Celsius Fahrenheit. Celsius or 152 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, boy. This was a totally unexpected finding, said lead researcher Jung Kao Wu from Berkeley Lab's material sciences division back in January twenty seventeen. Struggling to breathe tonight, mate. Oh yeah? I'm just out of
0: sync. Yeah. No, it's it's not you. I think it's the wording of this. I think it's the way it's like written it's the way yeah, you're it's right. It's it it it's weird idiotic. the way it's written.
1: All right. I'm delving back in. Wish me luck. Mm. It shows a drastic breakdown of a textbook law that has been known to be robust for conventional conductors. This discovery is of fundamental importance for understanding the basic electronic behaviour of novel conductors. Not only does this unexpected property change what we know about conductors, it could also be incredibly useful. The metal could one day be used to convert wasted heat from engines and appliances back into electricity or even create better window coverings that keep buildings cool. Well, I think the Look, other one is more revolutionary. Why? It's the way it's written. Because hmm. it should have ended with, like... Because that's... If you're converting heat into electricity, Yeah, that's a pretty massive new step. Yeah, But a fucking window covering they to keep, keep a building, building cool. cool? Come on.
0: I don't know. Look, I think... <laughs> Look, you can you can keep going. Flick down. I'm just going to speak for a second because I think, number one, I wonder whether this is written by an AI or something. I wonder it that. It feels
1: like it may, might be. It it's might clunky. Be.
0: It's clunky. However, these types of technologies, I mean, all of a sudden this stuff, yeah, we've just discovered quartz can store stuff and anti-gravity is real and UAPs Chinese are real.
1: discovered a new crystal on the fucking moon. Yeah,
0: like all this sort of stuff, right? How long is it going to be? They're going to go, oh, by the way, while you guys were, weren't watching, we've got UFOs, by the way. We already know how to do all this stuff.
1: See, but the thing is, if they tell us that, then they can't give us... They can't drip
0: feed us. They can't
1: drip feed us yeah. and make money out of us. Yeah, Because we're going to be like, oh, you've got the, the nec- tech. Yeah, the next big we'll thing Give us it. the best fucking tech. Instead yeah. of drip feeding us these um, planned obsolescence, yes. give us the fucking
0: horse's yeah. mouth, yeah yeah give us the give us the actual tech that you have as opposed to drip feeding, you know because yeah they've got to make their money off each incremental uh advance, don't they exactly, so as soon as you
1: go as soon as soon as you tell us that you've got all the tech, well now we're going to want all the tech
0: mm. Mm. where's the book? Book. Oh, the books here. Give me the here. Oh, Come across here. Sorry, man. For some reason, the book opened up in a different tab. Ah, uh, it's
1: down here. Oh, so over... no, nah, I was there looking it for it. I was hovering over them, but they wouldn't pop up and show me what was in them.
0: Look, I, I just, I'm just not going to be surprised at all. Well, number one, nothing really surprises me anymore. Nah. However, I'm not going to be surprised to see all this advanced tech just take a giant leap in the next little minute or two. You know, like. It's it's just gonna happen, it's just gonna happen, and then yeah. So I was having that conversation. I've been listening to a bit of uh, uh, Encounters Down Under. Everyone needs to listen to that. Anthony's really good. I'm actually going back on there on Monday uh, to talk about ancient tech mm-hmm. and oopart I'm actually going to because I was listening to one of his podcasts. He was talking about the anti mechanism. You know yeah. that that we we've already done a bit of research Montana on. Greece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm like ah, he. I don't think he knows much about oopart because he was asking me about. How to prove advanced technology in ancient times. Mm-hmm. And I think Oopart's actually a really good way to do that. It's oh, 100%, not You yeah. know. So I was gonna yeah, I'm gonna share a bit of Oopart stuff with him. Yeah. Should be some good fun. No, bloody oath. Um, well at the end of
1: the day, a lot of out of place artifacts were discovered in the exact same way that the ones that we use as basic models, but they were just in the wrong strata of rock. Mm-hmm. So it throws the paradigm that's out. That's right. So then they were discredited.
0: Yeah, that's right. And and you've got to remember there's, what, 75 plus thousand artifacts that have been catalogued that are classed as oop art. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: because they don't fit the paradigm. That's however, why oop art.
0: I was listening to one of his episodes today. Yeah. Wish I could yeah, remember. Yeah, yeah. it. And there was, a, there was a plane that disappeared over Bass Strait in the 60s, I think it was. It was a Cessna. Mm-hmm um but really interesting episode and apparently a CIA guy from america came over and said don't worry it's just one of our drones that pilot works for us now he can't tell you anything about it everything will be fine and that was on the don lane show back in the late 60s early 70s in australia channel channel nine mate. okay yeah was a crazy podcast i'll i'll when Nick, when you take over, I'll find out what episode it is so I can tell people because it's a really good episode. Um, yeah. I've actually got another guy coming on, Grant Levac, and he's currently petitioning the Australian government to release their UAP stuff. Right. Yeah, like proper yeah. freedom of information yeah, yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So, a couple of interesting episodes coming. It's all happening, mate. That's couple great of news. Uh, so, we were Sumerians, I think, where we were. Somewhere around there. Now I'll, I'll go. So now, with this, is where we ended. I think you ended. Now, with all the above in mind, according to the 6,000 year old Sumerian account, the actual creation of the solar system, including the creation of the hammered bracelet, which is the asteroid belt in between um, Mars, Mars and Jupiter uh, and the Earth, and ultimately of man, the calendar, of civilization, pretty well the whole shebang went like this in the beginning. Far, far back, and it's, it's how it's worded, because see, I've picked it up now, and it's fine. Isn't yeah, that interesting. Far, far back in the depths of time, Apsu, our son, was originally born with two companions. One was Mamu, the planet Mercury, and the other one was a watery planet called Tiamat, or even as beautiful Tiamat, the mother of all. Some cryptic references to Tiamat are actually made in biblically text. I was going to say that, where it is referred to as Tihom or Tihom Rabah. The great Tiamat. The next planets to come were Lahamu, Venus, Lamu, Mars, and then before the first two had even yet formed properly came Anshar, Saturn, Kishar, Jupiter, An, Uranus, and Antu, Neptune. While a smaller planetoid, of the Sumerians called Gaga, Pluto, was in turn born from Saturn and orbited the ring planet. Around as its satellite. Oh, okay. I saw a meme the other day about um it was something along the lines of I'm not saying demoting Pluto, whose you know, whose namesake is the god of war and destruction was it was a bad thing, but you know, just gestures to everything. <laughs> Don't know whether that was a good idea to do that, but things sort of went bad after Pluto got told, said it wasn't a planet. According to the texts at this early time. The Earth as such had not yet come into being while all the existing planets still had erratic and unstable orbits and wandered this way and that, all greatly affected by each other's gravitational pulls. How many years things remain in this state is not mentioned in the tale, but we are told that the next thing to occur and still many, many eons ago was a celestial invasion. A large planet, the text name is Nibiru, was thrown thrown from its own orbit far out in space and entered into our still unstable solar system. It was an event that would eventually prove to be a stabilizing factor for our system. It also wrought great havoc among the planets that already orbited the sun. For as it entered, it was also traveling in the opposing direction to the other planets. The rogue planet Nibiru was first attracted into our solar system by the gravitational pull of Neptune. Upon its initial entry, The planet was apparently still quite unstable and plastic because its passage past Neptune caused it to bulge dramatically from one side in the direction of the planet. Neptune's gravitational pull also affected its trajectory, causing it to curve inwards towards the centre of our solar system. The next planet it was to pass was Uranus, and in doing so it caused great distress to the planet, upsetting it immensely. The planet bowed, bowed to greet them, We can see through our own studies that, unlike any other planets, Uranus is in fact on its side, while its magnetic field remains vertical. This anomaly is here mentioned and explained by Sumerian texts. Nibiru's passage by the planet must have indeed been close, because four great chunks are also torn from Nibiru, creating four satellites that orbit about it wildly. The texts name these four satellites as the four winds, the north, the south, the east and the west wind. The largest of these new satellites was said to be the North Wind. The Nibiru approached Saturn, passing so close that it actually touched the planet rings, whereby its course was bent even further inwards by the huge gravitational pull of the giant and was now locked on course towards the inner planets. As it passed by by first Saturn, then Jupiter, the approaching Nibiru had a major influence on the inner planets, causing massive volcanic activity and very erratic orbital behavior. I mean, it's an interesting, like, it would, wouldn't it? I mean, if this body passes so close, right? If what, you know, what does the moon do to our tides? 100% right? Yep. You have another body pass close to the planet that's going to upset everything.
1: It does. One problem I have with this story. Mm hmm is as this planet is passing all the other planets, the planets don't sit, don't all orbit at the same speed. Yeah. So how's it, how's it, how's it, has so it passing entering into, into our solar system? Mm. The planets are all at different spots in their alignment, in their orbits. Well, they so, do line up
0: every now and again, though. Like that's, we've been looking at, there've been fair few alignments the last few years.
1: Yeah. But, They're going past all of them. At the same time. At the same like one and then the next and then the next. So I I get that it's
0: What is if if we're taking
1: it as a scientific description of Nibiru
0: entering Mm, the solar
1: system. system. Now, just while I've got you pulled up for a second, I've got another thought process Mm. which come to me from the beginning of this one. Mm. So they're describing the fact that uh Mercury was the first um planet. In the solar system. Yeah. Have you ever had anyone explain to you how the planets came into being? Like, as to how they form... No. uh, Like, all these technically moons that satellite around the the sun. sun. Yeah. How come there's different balls in different areas? Does a planet get captured is it formed somewhere else Mm. and then enters Mm. and get is large enough to get captured or does it form in the band around? Like I'm, I'm honestly saying I want like, I want the scientific. I've never had it explained to me in that chronological kind of order. Well,
0: there's, there's books in this bookshelf that might tell
1: us. Well, and the only thing that makes it only thing that it adds to is, so we have the, asteroid belt between mars and jupiter mm-hmm. okay and it's said that nibiru hit it and smashed it mm. right now sorry spoiler alert that's coming up in the story yeah, yeah but what if it's actually opposite so so we've got this mythological stuff whether it happened or not mm. um permeating but what if it's actually the opposite so we created that story to explain why there was an asteroid belt there. Mm. But, but what if that asteroid belt is actually the last planet that's forming and that's how planets form it starts as a ring of dust. And then slowly that ring of dust gains mass and runs into each other and builds up and then forms a planet.
0: Well, well that was, well, that's interesting, right? Cause my next question was what, well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Had the planets form, how'd they get there? Why are they all balls? I've never had that explained to me either. You know what I mean? Why are they all round? I, I,
1: I don't know. But my basic understanding of like physics, I believe it's because, because it's suspend Like it, imagine if you drop something Yeah, if, imagine if you drop something into like water, and it's suspended like a bubble. Like yeah, an yeah. air bubble forms around because it's the strongest a sphere is the strongest geometrical shape. Yeah.
0: It's evenly, evenly strength. Exactly. Where you're at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: So I, f- I feel like that's probably why mm-hmm. without, Wait. without an
0: actual yeah. explanation. It is interesting though, isn't it? Mm. It is interesting. Uh, where did we get to? I was locked on course towards the inner planets as it passed by. Saturn first, then Jupiter. The approaching Nibiru had a major influence on the inner planets, causing massive volcanic activity and very erratic orbital behavior. The massive gra- gravitational force of the approaching Nibiru caused huge chunks to be rent from Tiamat until the planet had eleven satellites revolving around it, revolving around it. One of them, called Kingu, continued to attract debris and grow until it had grown to the size of a small planet. Then pulled by the gravity of the approaching invader, Kingu left its orbit around Tiamat and began to assume the orbital characteristics of a planet in its own right, though it still remained close to Tiamat. Nibiru continued relentlessly on its course, on its way tearing Saturn's moon Gaga from the planet's grip. During these close passes, three more moons were also wrenched from the body of Saturn. The text naming them as Evil Wind, Whirlwind, and Matchless Wind. Okay. So you're saying, I get what you're saying about they're not all in a line all the time. Does the disturbance in their gravitational field, wherever they're moving around the sun, are they drawn? Like, is it like, because, you know, know, these moons suspend themselves around planets. Mm. A big massive body moves through the solar system. Are the planets drawn to that maybe in a way? Is that maybe why the Earth spun backwards for a couple of days? Because the big planet came and it sucked itself towards there.
1: That's possible. You know what I mean? It's hard. hard. Yeah, I, I with my limited understanding of gravitational. Force, yeah, exactly. With gravitational uh, mechanics and space it, physics. Maybe it would work. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah being full blown sophomaniacs of the highest order.
1: Yeah, um, without without being able to see it, happen. draw a diagram and see it. Happen. So the way I'm picturing it, right, is if we, is if we. Put this up onto the astral plane and imagine it. So you've got the if you think of it like the sun is at the back, mm. and then if we look at the orbits of the planets, yeah. and and for for this sort of description to work, you imagine the the planets sort of in a line coming out past you, mm. and and ending up at planetoid Pluto sort of thing out closest to you, and then you think because so if they're rotate like orbiting clockwise. Mm-hmm. Nibiru is coming in on, on this trajectory on the right hand side. Now, all I'm saying is because it, as it comes, we're still talking about it coming in, it's mm. not going back out. So it's coming in. Well, that's the, there, boost. that's yeah. exactly it there. Yeah. So as it comes in, see the arrows just there mm. and it's coming in. So the planets have to be in that quadrant of their orbit mm. to be affected. Mm. If they're at the back of the sun, yeah, over yeah, there, over here, as no, Nibiru is approaching, nothing's it's not happen. going to affect them. Yeah, so true. they're in a line in that quadrant somewhere mm. in this description.
0: Because mm. it, we'd imagine it skids along the asteroid belt and that's what shoots it back out the other side, maybe. I don't know.
1: No, but that's right. But the thing is, if the planets aren't there, mm. if they're in the other three quarters of the orbit mm. on the other side of the sun, the sun's bigger than Nibiru because Nibiru orbits the sun.
0: Yeah yeah yeah. you yeah, get yeah. me? Yeah yeah.
1: So that means the planets would have a great the greater gravitational pull from the sun mm-hmm. if they're on the other side if the sun's between them and this incoming planet. Mm-hmm. You get me?
0: Yeah, I get you. I get you. It's hard to know though, isn't it? You know, this is all speculation. Uh,
1: yeah, exactly. That's right. The other thing I was thinking But it's also too,
0: probability. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing I was thinking too with the Sumerian text, right? Yeah mythological story so is this you know like little red Riding hood don't go into the bush you know what i mean like all these stories that we grow up with it's metaphorical it's metaphorical i don't know whether it's yeah it's it's how they decided to tell that version of the story yeah mm.
1: yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. there's a meaning behind it mm. yeah so it's not necessarily a scientific
0: description yeah Nibiru is now surrounded by seven wildly orbiting satellites as the planet then began its approach towards Tiamat. As the two planets drew near to each other, Tiamat became inexorably drawn by the gravity of the huge invader. There you go. And there were massive electrical discharges that began arcing between the two planets, which caused great damage to Tiamat. But then something occurred. Perhaps the electrical arcing provided an electromagnetic cushion of some kind that repelled the two bodies. But for whatever reason, Nibiru's course became erratic and it did not collide with Tiamat. However, one of its satellites did. The satellite, called Evil Wind, plowed straight into Tiamat, cracking and splitting the planet into two In two, as ma- massive electrical discharges from Nibiru entered deep into Tiamat's core, completely extinguishing its life. That's a graphic. I mean, imagine just, we could computer generate that now. So what is he, he's got these seven massive satellite moons orbiting Nibiru, And it starts, these planets start creating electrical charges between each other. And then one of these things slingshots in there and just makes it explode.
1: You want Michael Bay directing that one. I know.
0: Like you could actually, (laughs) you could computer generate that. Um, This is illustrated well by Sitchin's own diagrams. Then Nibiru was now inorexically locked into orbit, left the inner planets to begin its vast elliptical journey around our sun. It was on its second orbit through our solar system when, when it, that a further disaster struck. I was going to say that too, like because it does the loop, it can hit the planets on
1: on entry and, and on and exit. exit. Yeah, yeah. But what I—that's—I pointed that out before. Mm. This was that it did all this on its entry. Yeah, Everything yeah. It yeah, yeah, was yeah. described.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah, because it was talking about its entry. Now it's talking yeah. about its exit. Yeah, Yeah. And hard as it may be to grasp at first, it is here that the Christian story of Genesis begins, and the par- parallels the Sumerian tale. Uh, I'll keep going if you want, mate. I want to hand it over in a yeah, second. Mate. You
1: keep punching on
0: the epic of creation, according to the text. On its second orbit, Nibiru itself collided with Tiamat's lower half, and delivered the truly fatal blow. The already damaged planet was no match for the enormous bulk of the invader, which hit one colossal piece of the already cracked Tiamat square on, pulverising it completely. The remaining half of Tiamat was struck by the orbiting north wind, Nibiru's largest moon, shunting the remainder of the broken sphere further towards the sun and into a new orbit, taking its large satellite, Kingu, with it. Kingu was now lifeless from the encounter, shrunk in size and cooled to a desolate, battered wasteland. The force of the blow was so great that the other 10 moons of Tiamat were also shattered. Their debris sent flying off on vast elliptical orbits on their own, although now following Nibiru's path in the opposite direction of the other planets of the system, an event which explains not only their existence, but also the incredibly vast and retrograde orbits of the comets of our solar system. Yeah, okay.
1: Okay. Yeah, I like that. Okay, yeah. I like that.
0: Gaga, the former moon of Saturn, confused by Nibiru's influence, began its life as a small planetoid we now call Pluto and continued off on its own eccentric orbit, which now marks the elliptical line that Nibiru had created with its entrance into our solar system. Modern scientists have also theorized that Pluto may have once been a moon of Saturn. In fact, its orbital path still overlaps that of Saturn today. Okay, I didn't know that. Oh, okay. So this is what he's saying. This is giving actual diagrams here. This must be Sitchin. Yeah. So, yeah, cracking it, and then it comes back around and smashes it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, The waters that were left on the broken sphere that was once the beautiful Tiamat spread out over the remaining chunk of the planet, which now shunted a little closer to the sun. Tiamat began its new orbit as the Earth while the remaining debris from the collision that floated in space spread out slowly to form the hammered-out hammered band that is now the asteroid belt. The Sumerians say the evidence of this cosmic event is still visible on Earth, and that is why all the land mass is on one side of the planet. And if you remove the oceans from Earth, it would not appear as a true sphere like the other planets, but rather slightly scooped out where the Pacific Basin lies. That is true, because it never formed a comp- Conform completely black, 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 back, back in black, uh, into a proper sphere. ACDC. ACDC. They say the Pacific Basin is the scar that still remains from the wound the planet once bore. This event apparently also gave the Earth its actual wobble. The stars, their images, and the stars of the zodiac, he fixed. It was during this cosmic collision that the seed of life was also transformed to the Earth. From Nibiru. I'm, I'm ready to take control if you want, mate. I'll finish this little paragraph here, Lovely. Mate. Nibiru, through the fixed orbital path it had acquired, was now destined to always return to the site of the celestial collision and cross the path of the asteroid belt where Timet would once orbited. For this reason, the planet is called Nibiru, the planet of crossing. And so was that the celestial lord created the hammered bracelet the earth that's interesting that is it because there is like there is that one photo you can get on a certain side of the planet where there is no land right there's a Mm. if you there's a third of the planet where if you zoom out like there's some little islands in the middle but it's just ocean yeah right there is no yeah between australia and south america yeah sort of thing yeah that area yeah yeah
1: and I think the Pacific Ocean is the deepest one.
0: It is, it is. It is a basin as well.
1: I just wonder, though, if you were to, like, uh, describe it, like... wonder how obvious it actually is, like, in real-world terms. Mm. Like, as in... Um, just the depth, like, from from continental land mass to the full depth, like would it still cover what was described, like the actions that were described Mm. sort of thing? Mm. And would it be possible? And that also kind of, you know, are we going to completely throw out the um, tectonic plate sort of theory altogether? Yeah. Yeah. Because like, you know, that goes back, I don't know if this is like still current, like if everyone's on this train or not, I don't know, but like the, the whole Pangea, mm. Eurasia, mm. Australasia, mm. like splitting, mm-hmm. gradual splitting, and then separating into the continents we have now. Mm. It kind of, we have to, I guess, throw that theory out if we're going to look at the Pacific basin. As the um, impact point. Yeah. Mm. You know, so mm. I don't know. Because once upon a time there was just one ocean. If you go purely by the plate tectonic model.
0: Yeah. But there's also this missing landmass as well. Like there's a landmass between us and New Zealand. There's Atlantis. There's, you know, um, yeah. And don't forget that landmass of Atlantis. That's between South America and Europe. Yep. Right. There's a big landmass yep. in the hole between us and Hawaii, Lemuria. Yeah, right. There's a landmass. You know what I mean. And so, Zealandia or Zealandia, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Which
1: is like sunken landmass between on, Australia on, and New Zealand. Yeah. No, well, it's around New Zealand. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. New yeah. Zealand's like a volcanic mountain ridge that sticks out of the. Yeah. The, but that's it's on plate. Of, but its plate's it's a lot plate, larger. Like yeah, that. and yeah, it's yeah. got like a, I guess. I guess the reason they're calling it a continent is because it's got like a continental shelf. Yeah. Kind of like we do. It's just that the shelf is much lower mm. than what ours is. Hence, it's, it's, all, it's all swallowed up. Now. Yeah, yeah. Sort of thing. So maybe that's, well, that could be it.
0: Keep going, mate.
1: All right. Let's see if I can slip into this flow. It's there. It's, it's there. It's for the taking. Mm. Again, the text do not mention how long things stayed in this fashion. They do, however, most definitely say that intelligent life first appeared on Nibiru long before it was ever found on the Earth. Where this life came from or how it evolved is not told, just that it was there, but eons later. All was not well on Nibiru. For because of the vastness of its new orbit and the great distances the planet travelled from the Sun, the inhabitants of the planet, the Enanaki. Suffering and facing a slow but inevitable ex- extinction due to a steady erosion of their planet's atmosphere. It had started when a hole had appeared in the protective ozone layer that surrounded the planet. Nibiru usually remained at a reasonably comp- constant temperature throughout its vast orbit due to a thick greenhouse atmosphere that was continuously replenished by constant volcanic activity. But that activity, now slowed down endangering life on the planet it was decided to create weapons of terror to reawaken the volcanoes but even after the blinding explosions from them had been directed at the sleeping mountains they still refused to release their volcanic clouds and the atmosphere continued to erode it was then discovered by scientists that the problem could be alleviated by suspending fine particles of gold dust in the upper atmosphere to create a curtain of charged particles that would protect and shield them during the planet's vast orbital peregrinations away from the sun. Gold was a substance that was very rare on Nibiru, but the Anunnaki knew that gold existed in in abundance within the hemmed bracelet so a dangerous mission was organised to retrieve the substance from the chunks of blasted rock within the asteroid belt. The mission was a total failure, and many brave heroes were crushed by the giant boulders in a dangerous quest that was attempted to gain a quantity of the precious metal from the asteroids and rescue their planet. Not one hero returned from the quest.
0: That answers your question, doesn't it, about how... In the last podcast, you were talking about how do they live?
1: That's on it. Nibiru exactly. when they're in such a wide orbit. That's the explanation. Very, using very thin no, pro- using gold is their solution. Yeah, to a problem yeah. further up, it, it was saying um, that there was a lot of volcanic activity on Nibiru, mm. and it dried up, and their ozone layer was or atmosphere was eroding. Mm. So then they came up with this solution of suspending gold particles in, the, in to keep the keep the ozone. Yeah, basically they called it ozone, but then they said it was other stuff. So ozone's an actual gas.
0: Yeah, well, I mean Max is probably using terminology that we don't exactly. We're like talking about ozone atmospheric layer. It's an atmospheric, atmospheric layer. Exactly. Interestingly, uh, Mr. Gates wants to do, do the same. He wants to suspend particles in the air to cool the planet down.
1: Yeah, well, it's been done before Mm. and if you're working off a model that is on a 3,600-year orbit and disappears out into the depths of space, then it must be pretty good tech. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. According to the texts, it was about 455,000 BC that due to a failure of the ruler of Nibiru to fix the deteriorating environment, a rebellion erupted. The ruler, Alalu, was deposed, of, was, was deposed by his half-brother, Anu, who wrested the kingship from Alalu in a naked wrestling contest. Okay. In fear for his safety after his defeat, Alalu fed Nibiru, escaping in a celestial boat, and after a journey fraught with dangers, reached the inner planets and became the first emissary of the Anunnaki that arrived on Earth. His initial arrival was very shaky, not knowing whether the atmosphere was breathable or if he would be better landing on land or water. He hesitated and his chariot was snared by the Earth's gravity. Its spread wings became aglow. Earth's atmosphere was like an oven. Eventually, he crash-landed safely in the Sinai region. He soon discovered that the... that the precious and much-needed gold could be found here. Alalu sent word to Nibiru of his find, but it wasn't until 5,000 years later that a further group of 50 Anunnaki, the biblical Elohim, led by one of Anu's sons named Ia, or E, arrived to investigate when Ia, I like Ia, meaning Lord of Water, first arrived on earth, the texts tell us that he and his party were also extremely unsure of the landing. So, after locking onto Alalu's beacon, they splashed their craft down in the waters of the Persian Gulf. When they arrived on the shore, they were wearing fish suits, and because they were still unsure of the atmospheric atmosphere, each had also donned an eagle mask.
0: The fish suit's one of those ones, isn't it? The fish is. suit is, is an echo.
1: It pops up everywhere. Mm. That's a good explanation of where It's the very fish mythological.
0: Ta- this sort of lends to what I was saying before, where it seems like a mythological telling of an event.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Definitely. Mm. With like uh, age-appropriate descriptions. That's right. Yeah. Ia quickly established the first Anunnaki settlement of Eridu in the area that was once Mesopotamia with the objective of extracting gold from the waters of the gulf though little gold was extracted from the ocean waters operations went quite well under Ea's control for some time but eventually gold production in the gulf region began to falter and slow so Ea's father Anu decided to visit Earth to investigate the problem bringing with him his other son is half-brother named Enlil who though younger than Ea was a pu- of pure blood and so the rightful heir this was later to prove a bitter source of rivalry between the descendants of the two half-brothers during Anu's visit it was decided to increase the gold mining operations Anu and the two half-brothers drew lots of control of the coveted Persian Gulf operation. After the, dr- after the draw, it was decided that Anu was to remain ruling on Nibiru. Enlil was placed in charge of the Gulf facility, while Ea was sent to a new southern land called Abzu to commence mining operations in a new location. The Abzu is often referred to in myth- in mythology as the Underworld or as Hades, in biblical references, but, which in fact was according to the text, a settlement in southern Africa. Right. Okay. A settlement S- in southern, southern Africa. In southern Africa, yeah. Yeah. Ia was also given the new title of Enki, Lord Earth. Signified by the symbol of the serpent, and basically meaning one who has great knowledge of the secrets of the earth. Literally, he who solves secrets or he who knows metals.
0: Remember, too, that we don't know who named the earth. Mm. That's one of those ones. It's like, who called earth, earth? No one really knows. The earthlings. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Enki's younger half-brother Enlil, the legal heir of Anu, was made the true ruler of Earth and placed in control of the operations at Eridu and received the title Lord of the Command. It is mentioned in the texts that on the particular occasion, before Anu's visit was concluded and he departed from Earth to return to Nibiru, he was again challenged by Alalu, who declared Anu to be a usurper. Again, they removed their attire and wrestled oiled naked and rock hard
0: well i mean again, what's i mean what's that why are we naked oil wrestling is that must be the sumerians like naked oil wrestling i mean
1: maybe like is it, maybe that's just like a, a, a
0: what what is the mechanism there cuz it's a, weird, a that's like the third time tradition yeah a bit of oil <laughs> naked wrestling i don't know anyway that's.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mate, you know, you've got to have customs and, and traditions. That's right. <laughs> Maybe there's just hearkened back to a time. Yeah. You know, we, we still wrestle. We just, put, we just don't do it naked with oil, oil these oil. days. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And if that's what you're into, so look, be it's it. totally
0: fine. You know, get after it.
1: Exactly. But again, Anu won the match. So. Distraught was Alalu that when the fight had ended and Arnu had been declared the rightful victor, he set upon his half brother and bit his dick off that and swallowed s- it.
0: Injury, seriously, did yeah. I thought you I thought, no. you? I thought
1: you were going. Off. I just changed. Look, it says bit man- good, bit his, man- bit his off. Yeah, dick was better. He bit his dick off and, and swallowed it, it injuring Arnu greatly, but also sealing his own fate. Wow,
0: I did not. I thought I thought you were just going. Just going off for yeah, I yeah, thought Maca came to play you know, and just talking it. about, you know.
1: <laughs> just going off the cuff. Mm. You gotta no, say. mate. That was it. That, that, it is. that, that is what happened. you got to use that word too, though. With the, With the phallus mm. of Anu burning in his guts, horribly, slowly poisoning him from the gonorrhea, he was fought before the seven who judge and by them was banished to die alone on Lamu, Mars. Though to this end he was accompanied by one faithful servant called Anzu, possibly himself a grandson of Alalu's, who wished to provide the once Niberian king fitting burial, and in in so doing have his own deeds remembered for all time.
0: That went in a weird direction,
1: it did, it, it did, it, it uh escalated quickly, yeah. But, um, and that's maybe that's why we don't wrestle nude anymore. Maybe someone bit someone's dick off. <laughs> I don't <know>. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Mm. I digress. Keep going, mate. During that time, the climate on Earth began to mellow into something more comfortable for the Anunnaki. So they changed into something more comfortable and more arrived on Earth to help obtain the much-needed gold. One of the new arrivals was Enki's half-sister, Ninma, who was also a medical officer and a geneticist.
0: Yeah, of course she was. While
1: on the journey from Nibiru to Earth, Ninma stopped on Lamu to see what had become of Alalu and Anzu. The texts describe Lamu as having ice caps on both poles and being of reddish hue, with lakes and water fit to drink, but lacking in sufficient atmosphere for breathing without the aid of the eagle masks. Alalu was long dead, but Ninma was able to revive Anzu, who told her he had placed Alalu's body in a cave beneath a great mountain that arose beside a lake nearby. Sumerian tablets tell us that the party left Lamu they had used weapons of power to carve the great mountain beneath, which Alalu was buried into his image. The texts say that the image was of his face, looking skywards towards Nibiru and Earth. That's the face. Mm. Uh, Whose gold he discovered and that they carved the monument of Alalu wearing the eagle mask, but with his face uncovered. The Sumerian texts have here quite accurately described Mars, including its polar ice cap, which science has shown is indeed frozen water and have mentioned the existence of the bizarre and very enigmatic face on Mars. Mm. The question is, how on Earth could they possibly know about any of that?
0: Yeah, look, I mean, the weird story aside, aside the facts are interesting for sure. I mean, they know that there's definitely water on Mars now, without a doubt.
1: Yeah. And
0: enough water there to produce, not to produce an atmosphere of oxygen, but enough water there to... um make an oxygen machine, you know what I mean? Like yeah. to have.
1: But part of the problem I believe with Mars is the, excuse me, um, magnetic field. Yeah. Because it's part of the magnetic field that also helps to sort of mm. control the well, That's why
0: they say something hit Mars and that's why it's like a half peeled orange and it disrupted the core.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right, mm. and caused it to like cool down. Mm. So soon, with the arrival of a party of three hundred more Anunnaki, the gold mining operations on Earth were running smoothly again. The gold-bearing ores were being steadily shipped from Africa, the Abzu, to the Gulf to be refined. Then sent up to a way station that had been established on Lamu, near the tomb of Alalu. From there, refined gold was shipped to Nibiru in bulk via spacecraft that would periodically arrive. Texts inform us that the Anunnaki that were in command of the way station were named the Ijiji, later to become the biblical Nephilim. And that by the time I lost my spot, the Anunnaki had also set up a total of seven vital operation centers in the Persian Gulf region to deal with the mammoth task of coordinating the procedures and exporting the refined ores. These control settlements included a spaceship at Sipar, a control center at Nippur, a medical center. At Eden and a metallurgical center at Apak. During this time, and with the help of the Yajiji, Alalu's grandson Anzu attempted to seize control of the earth operations and a short war broke out. However, Enlil's son Ninurta. Quickly squashed the disturbance and disposed of the troublesome grandson. Do you want me to take over, mate? Yeah, you can have a turn back again.
0: So I'm not going. And listen, I'm going to draw a weird bow here. Pull it. So, and this is fast forwarding to the modern times. So one of there's a there's a senator uh, who's basically been asking about Australia's gold reserves. And right. So Australia, the country that produces the most, one of the most amount of gold on the planet. You would think we keep our gold bars here. Well, we don't. We keep them in London because that, you know, that makes sense. Right. We're and part of the
1: Commonwealth. Yeah. So let's
0: call that the reason. Yep. Anyway. So the senator asked them, where has anyone actually seen the gold? Who's seen, like, apparently we're supposed to have 150 pallets of gold or whatever it is. Right. Where is it? And he's like asking questions about, has anyone actually, I mean, surely if you had a, you know, it was something like, hundred billion dollars worth of gold, surely you'd send someone every now and again just to cite it, you know, just to wander amongst the bars and make sure that it's all there. Mm-hmm. Turns out no, right? Of course not. Right? They they get sent um reports or something, right? But basically it's Emails. very, very thin. It's very <laughs> evident. And the senator's like, so you're telling me that no one's actually seen our gold. Who was the last person that saw Australia's gold reserves, and it was like, oh, 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 I don't know. Now, I'm not saying that the gold doesn't exist because we shipped it to Mars to send it to Nibiru, but I'm also not, not saying that either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm hearing you. Yeah, yeah man. Where'd it what, go?
1: What, yeah, why, why did, is that also a possible reason why we moved away from the gold standard? Yeah. To free up the gold.
0: Yeah, Nabiri wanted its shipment. Yeah. Anyway, tales of gods and men. Eventually, a mutiny arose amongst the Anunnaki in Africa, who were endlessly laboring the mining operations under Enki's control. The Anunnaki were tired of the years of toil in the mines, and after a conference, it was decided to, by Enki to enlist the help of his half-sister Ninmar, the geneticist, to create a worker race who would relieve some of the burden of the Anunnaki. Enki himself was a great scientist and he and Nimma used elements of the Anunnaki, DNA, mixed with elements of animals to experiment in the task. Initially a variety of animals were used in the tests and some odd looking creatures were produced. It was believed that creatures such as horses would produce strong workers but after a few Anunnaki horse hybrids and other even stranger creatures were developed, the idea of breeding creatures of pure burden was abandoned. Enki said, he knew that a small race that lived in the forest of the Abzu that would be perfect for the task and Nimar eventually succeeded in creating a primitive worker race by mixing the essence of Anunnaki DNA with DNA taken from this lesser primate species. Eventually, success was achieved and soon many of the new workers began to take over the toils of the African mining operation. The procedures she used and the methods of birth, etc. were recorded in quite a detailed manner in some of these texts. Ninmar named the new race she would created the Adamu or Adamu. Adamu. Yeah, I know, but Adam, that was like... Oh yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah. A most interesting detail of the Sumerian account is the mention that all the genetic experiments were first conducted in crystal dishes without success. It was not until Enki surmised that perhaps not enough of the actual elements of earth itself were present in the experiments as suggested the use of clay dish for the process which would possibly leach some traces of those elements into the mixture, though its use, that success was obtained, and the Lord fashioned a man from the clay of the ground. That's out of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Even after the race had recreated, though, it soon became apparent that many more would be required to ease the toil of the Anunnaki workers. Soon Enki again sought out the services of his half-sister and her genetic prowess. Ninma conducted further tests, began more genetic manipulation, and soon Enki's son Ning Shizida, Shizida succeeded in giving the new Adamu race the desire and ability to procreate by adding two more two more pieces to the human DNA strand. He added the leaves of knowing to their tree of life. There you go. That's the... The Sumerians describe this human tree of life as resembling two intertwined serpents. The texts tell us that the human tree at the time only had 22 leaves and that Ninmah added two more. Such an account very accurately describes a 24 chain double helix strand found in human DNA. Again, how on earth would the ancient Sumerians know that do you suppose? It's a fair question.
1: Yeah. You've got to know that to write that That's into right. your fucking mythological That's Exactly, you need
0: you need to be able to actually. Con- yeah, exactly. That's some funky shit. Yeah. When Enlil decided, no, sorry, when Enlil discovered the Adamu could now procreate, he was furious with Enki and demanded how much more his brother would grant to his new pet race without consent, and how long would it be before he further altered their life tree to include the long lifespan of the Anunnaki his brother and sister replied they would never add the two extra leaves required for longevity. But Enlil was not appeased and he forced the Adamu to leave the Eden facilities where they'd been housed and fend for themselves in the wild. Do you just notice that? He forced the Adamu to leave the Eden facilities. Mm -hmm. Though many were still required to work for the Anunnaki as was their purpose. Even cast out of the Eden by Enlil, the Adamu began to multiply greatly. Well, we, we are known for that. And before very long, uh, all that oil naked wrestling. That's, and soon both brothers had an abundant supply of the new Adamu workers, both for the mines in Abzu and for the many tasks in the centers of Mesopotamia. Things then went along steadily for, for, a, for a time until the earth descended into a glacial period at around 200,000 BC, during which time most of the Anunnaki returned to Nibiru for the duration. The Adamu races and other species on earth regressed during this glacial period, which lasted until 100,000 BC, when the earth at last began to warm again, and it was during this time that the Anunnaki returned to earth again. But during the 100,000 years that the Anunnaki had been away, the descendants of the Adamu had not been idle. The race had multiplied greatly during the Ice Age and even evolved into a species that had become fair to behold, though at this time food was also becoming scarce due to the recent Ice Age and proliferation of mankind. The Anunnaki were also becoming tired of the sameness of their diet. It was sometime around this period that Lord Enki was apparently taken by two young Adamu maidens he saw bathing by a river. He made love to both that afternoon leaving his servants sworn to secrecy to watch over them and inform him if the maidens fell pregnant and gave birth. Soon he was informed that such births had indeed taken place, one male and one female. And so Enki had the children brought to his house, and to the amazement of all, the two children were capable of a speech. This was the first time speech had been seen in the Adamu. Okay. Enki named the two children Adapa, the biblical Adam, and Tiamat after the great cosmic mother, the biblical Eve. Yeah, Tiamat, that's the the great mother. That's Mother Earth. That's the, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was trying to join that together earlier. Yeah. According to Sumerian texts, Adapa and Tiamat eventually had two sons, Abel and Cain. In delight that intelligent man had now miraculously come into being, the Anunnaki had grains and sheep brought from Nibiru, and the two sons were taught in their ways. Abel was taught as a shepherd in the way of animals by one of Enki's sons named Marduk, which we heard last time. Mm -hmm. Cain, or Cain, was trained in the skills of farming and the nature of soils and minerals by a son of Enlil called Nunurta. Nurnurta is another one of those names too. However, when the first lambs were born and the first crop was harvested, the two sons brought them before Enki. He was greatly hungry for fresh meat and so showed great deal more joy at the prospect of fresh meat than of bread. Cain felt dejected and soon Abel began belittling his brother and boasting that Enki favoured him more. So the tension grew. Due to the dispute over water, one day Cain killed his brother Abel with a rock and so was brought before the seven who judge. I love that. The seven who judge. Seven sisters. Pallades. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, always seven, isn't it, and condemned to death for his crime. Enki then revealed that his transgressions with the main stating that Adapa was in fact his son, and so too was Cain, his descendant. He explained to all that the speech of Adapa was in fact no miracle were done in the hope of making modern man so food, so that food could be supplied. The council then overturned Cain's death sentence to one of banishment and said that Cain must be given a mark. So that he and his descendants would be recognized and not killed by mistake. Ning Ishzida then genetically altered Cain's essence and he was sent to wander in a distant country. Things went along quite steadily for a while. Adapa and Tiamat had another son called Sati, the biblical Seth, Seth's uh, Egyptian god as well, uh, and eventually a further 30 sons and 30 daughters. Got busy. More oil wrestling, I think. <laughs> um, <it's, laughs> uh, sorry, just went a weird space earlier. Man. Some, yeah, yeah. Uh, and mankind continued to proliferate. Soon, for one excuse or another, many of the IgG, the biblical Nephilim, uh, or Nephilim uh, came to earth, and many took the daughters of the new race, the descendants of Adapa, to be their brides. But the Anunnaki were larger and more powerful than the Adavu women. And many of them died in childbirth. These events are also mentioned outright in the Christian story of Genesis. Okay, Enlil Vild viewed 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 the unions made between Anunnaki and the descendants of Adapa as distasteful, thinking it degrading of his people to breed with a lesser race. He began to form a dislike for mankind, but he allowed the practice to continue nonetheless. The children of many of these unions between Anunnaki became people of renown. These were the godly offspring and the heroes of many ancient legends.
1: And that's directly out of Enoch. Yeah, that last line. Yeah,
0: yeah. And also the story of the, the Greek gods, the Celtic titans, gods, the so Titans. Yeah, yeah. yeah, D or the above.
1: Hundred percent. Well, yeah. that they're, they're all coming from this one.
0: Yeah, that's right. Then suddenly around 75,000 BC, the earth descended into another ice age far more severe than the previous one. During this time, the Anunnaki retreated again and a great many of the Adamu race were wiped out. The texts do not mention what triggered either of these two ice ages, just the fact that they both occurred. We are told that during the second glacial period, various regressive species of Adamu roamed the earth by its conclusion, the dominant race on Earth were the descendants of Adapa, Homo sapiens sapiens. One text mentions that sometime during this period, Nibiru's passage through the asteroid belt, with one of Tiamat's former moons now a comet falling behind it, apparently loosened many huge boulders which caused meteor storms on Earth, the Moon and Mars. According to the personal account of Enki himself, the Moon was apparently struck by the comet itself as it passed. When the Anunnaki returned to earth, they again found pockets of man who had survived the Ice Age. Enki and Ninmar were so overjoyed at finding survivors and so impressed by the hardiness of their new race, they both agreed that time had come to elevate those humans, who were an Anunnaki percentage to the position of rulers of Shurubak, the great medical centre of Ninmar. The decision by his brother and sister to do this enraged Enlil beyond belief and secretly he began to plot the demise of the race of man, for he had also become tired with all the noise and disturbance that was being created by man, and had once, more than once imposed severe noise restriction on them. For being a great number of years, he employed various methods to dispose of mankind, who by now had multiplied immensely and were creating noise, mess, and general chaos. He allowed the proliferation of waves of pestilence and disease, plagues of insects, droughts, great fires, and for general mayhem to be the lot of mankind as punishments for their transgressions. But still, the race held on. Then around 13,000 BC, Enlil saw his opportunity to be rid of men once and for all. You see, the Anunnaki had noticed a strange groaning and seismic rumblings that animated from the great white land in the south, Antarctica, with every passage of Nibiru. They'd set up sensitive equipment at the southernmost tip of the Abzu, Africa, to monitor such activity. Enlil knew that Nibiru would soon be making another close passage past the Earth and that his readings had shown with the gravitational pull of the huge celestial body in such a close proximity to the Earth, a slip of the Antarctic ice cap was imminent. The event would generate an enormous global tsunami and worldwide flooding. So this is another, so, mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah, another take on the on, the, on flooding. the flooding.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. He knew that it would be imperative for the Anunnaki to leave Earth during such an event although it would seriously per- surely perish in the deluge. Enlil then held a massive held a meeting with Enki, Ninmah and the other Anunnaki and informed them of the approaching calamity but made them swear to secrecy and to withhold information about the impending disaster from men so that the race would be obliterated in the flood. But Enki was distraught and could not bear to keep the oath, so great was his love for the race he had created, with his half-sister and civilised man that had sprung from the line of Adapa. So one night after a vision he devised a plan, and the next day he went to visit one of his human sons in secret. The plan- The man was named Zuzdun, Zeus, uh, Zeus, Udra, Zeus, uh, Zeus, Udra,
1: whatever. If Grub was here, he'd be able to tell us. Yeah.
0: Yeah, the Sentinel. Uh, the Biblical Noah was also known as Umna Fishtim or as Atrahasis in some tales, but it's Noah. Not looking at, I'm not going to say that word, at Noah. At Noah, yeah. But instead of pretending to speak to a reed hut, and so, holding true to his vow, Enki told the hut about the doom that was about to befall the earth, and left instruction on a tablet for the building of a great submersible vessel but that would roll and tumble, in which a man and his companions could safely ride out a great deluge that was soon to come from the south and engulf all civilization. Enki emphasized haste in the task and said to gather inside the craft his family and all the domestic creatures that he could. He then provided Noah with a navigator named Ninagal, who was another of his sons. Enki then instructed him that he should look to the, look to the west for a sign that the deluge was imminent, and then would be the time to board the vessel and seal it tightly. He said not to inform anyone of the doom that was to befall mankind, but instead to say to his countrymen that he had won the displeasure of Lord Enlil, and was now to move to Absu to serve Lord Enki, and those who wished to travel with him he would take. We are told that Enki and Ninmar were also sorrowful that all the creatures of the world, including those that are brought from Nibiru, would also perish in the flood so they conceived a plan to extract the essence, DNA, from as many as they could so they could repopulate the earth with them after the deluge. The precious seeds of all the animals they could find were collected in pairs, one male and one female, and stored in a box and delivered to Ninigal by messenger for him to hold safely within Noah's vessel. Then sometime around circa eleven thousand BC came the deluge. At first the signs of the event, the Anunnaki immediately launched their ships from the spaceport at Sippar to the west of Noah's position with his submersible vessel. When Ninigal saw the launch of so many ships, he saw that Enki had told him would come from the west the sign, for the Anunnaki were now departing, so Noah hurriedly boarded the vessel and sealed himself inside to await deluge, taking with him his family, those who had wished to, from the start to sail with him to the Absu, his navigator, and what creatures he could gather to him. Then came a massive deluge of ocean from the south that engulfed the globe. The ships of the Anunnaki escaped the flood and sat in orbit as they watched the devastation from the heavens. The waters swept across the earth. Ninmar wept openly at the destruction of Enki, and Enki also grieved greatly. And there they waited until the torrents subsided. Uh, Where are we doing, mate? Let's have a bit of a scope here. It's a pretty long one.
1: We've got a fair bit left. Yeah.
0: So. Do you, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to call it there if you want, mate. It's Let's up to do you.
1: This. Yep. Call it there, mate. Yeah. I think that's that's a wrap, my friend.
0: Mm. Mm. It's mm. been a fun one. Yeah, nice little punch. Um,
1: I'm, liking, I'm liking how... So obviously we understand all of the crossovers. Yeah, we can see them now. Yeah, but I'm also enjoying the fact that, like throughout that, there's explanations of modern problems, mm. like mm. as in like the the DNA and and mm. stuff like that. Mm. So it's it's a it's, it's just a one stop shop.
0: Yeah, and it I wonder, like you've got to question how they knew these things, right? and you you can't not uh because now I'm looking at it I like because I listened to the last episode yeah. uh and we were talking about the fact that we didn't take it because it was all Sitchin's work right whereas I let go of that now I'm yeah. just I'm just analyzing it like I've never seen it before exactly because I haven't really I haven't, haven't not in this depth have I looked at this work no um and there's enough there that you've got to ask the question of how did they know this stuff? Like how, the, how is this, how is this mythological story telling us about all these things that again, it's like another thing we it's like, as our technology advances, we look back into these megalithic societies and see that they knew back then what we knew or what we know now but it's only through our advancement of technology that we figure out that they knew that we knew that we knew that they knew you know what i mean well for instance the whole part about
1: like hominids there was other hominids but it was sapiens sapiens that that remained Mm. so we only know about other hominids through our archaeological uh, digs Mm. so how did the sumerians to to include that into their their myth story through the creation story, mm. how did they know about other hominids
0: mm. Mm. and also the the various creatures as well um, yeah i mean how did they how did they know about those
1: Well, that's right, and this is what we mean about it like it really it it really fills the holes for the modern time, mm. you know it gives those explanations mm. to things that ask a question. How did they know about that 6,000-odd yeah. years ago, like, if that's the whole Sumerian story?
0: And the weird creatures as well. Like It's like because there's weird creatures we that we found in the fossil record. It's like, where did they come from? They don't make any sense. Yep. Maybe they came from Nibiru. You exactly. Know I mean? Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They are, you know, yeah. they're the cane toad of, uh, or they yeah, were the cane yeah, toad. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. They're like the cane toad. Yeah. 100%. They mm. come from Hawaii. Now they call Australia home.
0: Yeah. Well, mate, another interesting one. I'm I'm keen to see where he goes. No, uh, the Sentinel couldn't join us tonight. He was a little under the weather, and then he had some other stuff to do. So, but uh, this was a this was an off the cuff one, which I enjoyed, man. Thanks very much, dude. And, yeah,
1: no, you're welcome, man. And we
0: will uh, next time we will we'll, go
1: we'll dig further into the Sumerian creation story
0: after the deluge.
1: Lovely. That'll be EFS 17,
0: 17 Apparently, thanks, guys. You're awesome. Uh, Please look after yourself, stay safe, be cool. That was your cue to go. Oh. I
1: thought I thought we I thought we um there was another line of yours. Anyway, in this life and the next. Yeah. On you guys. Cheers.
0: Just want to go again? Let's do it. Yeah. Go again. All right. I know you been here before No surprises settle the score I know the darkness deep inside Reckless rage Poison pride I know the anger I know the pain My time is through I know you I know you